We're Christians. We call ourselves Christians. And why is that? We call ourselves Christians because Christ died for us, because we are His bride. And we speak a lot about the gospel. What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. And it's good for us to speak about Christ and to make much of Him because He's done so much for us. But an emphasis on one truth to a de-emphasis on another can be a distortion of the truth. We know that God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet I suggest that as Christians, we spend the greater part of our time thinking about Christ to the exclusion or to the minimization of the Father and the Spirit. And in recent weeks, God has really given me some insights about who He is, specifically as a Father, and some lack of clarity that I had in my, my thinking all these years, Christian home, Christian school, church, that have just really revolutionized the way I've seen Him. It's not revolutionary to Scripture. It's been there all along. It's just my inability to see it, I think. And perhaps others of you may share some of that haze, the fog. And if you don't, if you, if you have this clarity that we'll talk about today, I praise God for it, and I hope you won't be uh, irritated if you're reminded of it again. But it has been so much on my heart, and when Joe gave me the opportunity to fill in for him, I felt like this was the thing to talk about. Now, what we will talk about today is a mystery. I tremble because to stand up here and to talk about this is who God is, you know, I don't want to put words in God's mouth. I want to represent God accurately. And God is a mystery. God is above us. There is complexity there that we as humans don't fully grasp. And so we will be talking about things that are mysterious today. Our tendency can to say, well, I can't understand the Trinity, so I'll just, I'll just kind of keep it at the basics. While, while there's a danger to misrepresent the Trinity, there's also a danger to ignore truth that God has revealed about Himself. And that may be even a greater danger than to get some minor aspect of the Trinity wrong in your thinking. Augustine, back in the 400s, said, you cannot love what you do not know. And if God has revealed Himself through Christ, and Christ came to reveal the Father to us, if we don't get to know the Father, we're not going to love the Father as we should because we don't know Him as we should. And we've not taken every opportunity to, to pursue Him and, and to get to know Him more. Now in your bulletins and up here on the screen, you'll see that I have referenced this very short part of 1 Corinthians 8.6. And I don't want to use that as a springboard. I'm not going to say, well, here's a little phrase. Let me see what, I can, what creative ideas I can come up with. But I, I'm not going to have time to cover the whole passage. Let me just read 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 6 to set the context, but I really want to focus on this one phrase, there is one God, the Father. Now I'll be reading from the New King James, it's where I feel the most at home, and I don't know where the things are on the page, so bear with me if you're, it's a little bit different, but it should be pretty close. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, believers, there is one God, the Father. There is one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Now, Paul has this really unusual habit of giving us really deep theology just on the fly. He's always dealing with some kind of situational issue, some, some conflict, some problem. And to illustrate or to help the, the churches understand how to deal with that problem, he'll make some reference to some deep point of theology, but then he won't go any deeper. And we're like, oh, that sounds so good. I wish he would have said more. He does this in Philippians. Philippians, he's dealing with the Philippians maybe squabbling a little bit and not learning to serve each other well. And so to illustrate how Christians should treat each other in the church, he says, but be like Christ who made himself of no reputation, but he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He emptied himself. And so we're left like, what? Christ emptied himself? What does that mean? The Son emptied himself to come to earth? What does that mean? But Paul doesn't give us nearly as much as we wished that he would give us. Or take 1 Corinthians 11 when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's dealing with an actual problem in the church in Corinth. They're, they're, again, they're, they're, they're misusing the Lord's Supper. And so Paul just makes some passing references to what that supper represents. 
to deal with an actual problem there that's facing the church. But he doesn't go nearly into the depth that we would wish he would on, First Corinthians, on the Lord's Supper. And that's why you have these different views of what the Lord's Supper is or represents. And Paul does it here too as well. They, these believers, they're in the marketplace. What happens is in Corinth, you have many idol temples. And food is sacrificed to these idols. The situation then is that you offer some of the animal up to the idol and the rest is sold at a discount in the grocery store because it's, you know, it's kind of used or it's, it's not fresh or it may be fresh, but it's, not, um, it's marked down basically. And so the Christians are faced with this dilemma. Is it okay to eat this food? I mean, it was, it was offered to an idol. Some of it was burned up or used in the sacrifice, but the rest of it's for sale. Is it wrong if I as a Christian go and buy this food that was offered to an idol? And what Paul does is he said, well, let me tell you what an idol is. It's nothing. People think there are idols, but they don't really exist. They're in their minds, their imaginations, they're made up. But for us, there is one Lord. And who is the one Lord? He's the one God, the God, the God is the Father. Who's the Father? Father the Father is the one through whom, um, um, for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we for him. And so what he's going to say is that because God, the Father, is the source of all things, then this meat that you want to buy at the, the, the East Corinth Walmart, the, the meat aisle, that's okay if you buy that because it was made by God. It's all through him. It's not impure. It's not polluted just because some pagan offered it as a sacrifice and held it in his hands. But what I want to do then is say, what is he getting at? What is he saying when he says there is one God, the Father? If you read that quickly, it looks like he's not even including Jesus Christ as God because he says there is one God, the Father. And in fact, many people who do not believe in the Trinity will point to this verse as try to manipulate what he's saying here to show that God is only one, and he's not three. But that's not the focus of what I'm doing today. I don't have time to do that. That's, I, that's not my goal. My goal is to focus on the fact that God is the Father. And if you need more information, you know where to find it. You know Pastor Joe, Pastor Rodney. If, this, if you want more information on how Paul is including the Son as God in this verse, that could be time for another sermon or Bible study, whatever it might be. But let's emphasize and just dwell on the fact that God is the Father. There is one God, the Father. And so the first thing we want to notice is that there is one God. This is the foundation of everything Paul wants to establish. Whatever we say about God being three has to fit inside this box of there is one God. And we know this from the Old Testament. What's the very first book of the verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or you fast forward a few hundred thousand years to the period of the Exodus, after the Exodus, God gives the great Shema to Israel. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that monotheistic religion, that is what set Israel apart among all the other, well, it was supposed to set them apart. Sadly, it didn't. That was what set them apart from all the other uh, idol-worshiping, uh, false god-worshiping nations of that time period. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is something that Paul held very fiercely before his conversion. But what does it mean that the Lord is one? Again, there's a, a lot to be said. But this talks about the, the doctrine of God's divine simplicity. God cannot be divided into parts. All that God is, he is together. Um, he has one essence. He is one in nature. You can't divide the Father, the Son, and Spirit up in their nature. They're spoken of individually as persons, but in their nature... In the, the nature, there is one nature of God that cannot be divided. He is without parts. And so that when we're talking about God being one, that's what we're saying. Not only is there one God, but God is one. And this was a major emphasis in the Old Testament. Paul held this. That's what he grew up on. He was told there is only one God. Perhaps this was a great barrier to him becoming a believer in Christ because he said, well, Christ can't be God because there is one God. But the major emphasis in the Old Testament was this one God. Although there are hints, just little hints, that there might be something more profound coming that we as believers in the New Testament era are privileged, privileged to have access to. But think about how God revealed himself in the Old Testament. For a very short period of time, Adam and God walked together in the garden. But this didn't last for very long. After Adam's sin, God withdrew upward and Adam was sent outward from the garden. And there was a separation between God and man. And throughout the Old Testament, you get these glimpses. You get certain people who walk with God, who, who have a close relationship with God. What do we say about Enoch? It says Enoch walked with God. Abraham was called the friend of God. David was called the man after God's own heart. And so we see that there could be close relationships with God in the Old Testament. 
But you know what? Even for these men, there was a barrier. There was some obscurity. Because they had to kill animals for their relationship with God to be maintained. Abraham doesn't specifically say that about Enoch, but we know that they were offering sacrifices at that time. Abraham built altars. Abraham offered sacrifices. Rams were killed so that Abraham could be in relationship with God. And even David, the man after God's own heart, the man who wanted to build the temple for God, he was not a Levite. He was not allowed into the holy place or even the holy of holies. He was kept back. There was a distance and a separation from even from those we would consider believers and the Old Testament saints. There was still a distance. There was still a lack of, of close relationship with God in the Old Testament. Consider the words that Abraham used for God. Abraham, the friend of God, he spoke of God as the Lord God, the most, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. He called him the Lord God or the Lord. And God revealed himself to Abraham as I am the, I am the Lord God Almighty. These are the words by which these Old Testament saints knew God. They knew him as God. But not once did ever want any of these men, Enoch, Ab- Abraham, or David, ever call God Father. That was a revelation that was waiting for the Son to be revealed. That is a privilege that we have as believers that no one before the time of Christ ever had. So we cannot take that for granted. We know God in a relationship and by a name that the greatest saints of the Old Testament did not know him by. But God is one. When we turn over to the New Testament, God is still one. Just flipping a few pages does not change God from one into three. The oneness of God doesn't change just because we get into the New Testament. Jesus says in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We have a verse that we read just a few minutes ago, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, There is one God, the Father. Or Ephesians 4, 6, There is one God and Father of all. This emphasis on the one God is continued. Old Testament, New Testament, that is the foundation of everything we hold as believers, as Christians. And yet suddenly, in spite of this fact that we have one God, Old Testament through New Testament, without a gap, without a glitch, suddenly we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of a sudden, what do we hear? We hear all kinds of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Where did that come from? Where do we, why do we get Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Suddenly, it just pops up everywhere in the Gospels. I did some reading this week, and I, was, I, I read through Matthew, read through John, and, and some, other, some of the other books. In the Gospel of Matthew, the word Father is used 99 times, and nearly half of them, to God the Father. It, the, from, 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 from virtually no references to God as Father in the Old Testament, all, all of a sudden, 44 times. 20 times Jesus calls God your Father when he's talking to his disciples. And 80% of those times are in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. There's an intense, sudden emphasis on God as Father in the New Testament. You get to the Gospel of John, and the Father, term for for God as Father, it's just off the charts. 126 times, 95% of them are about God the Father. Only 5% used about human fathers. 95% of 126 uses of the word Father in the Gospel of John are either my Father, the Father, or your Father. So there's a sudden sea change. There's a complete shifting in how we think about God, Old Testament to New. Now, as we begin to think of God in three persons, we have to remember some massively important things. God is spirit. God is not material. Even though Christ came in the flesh, the Son of God in in his being and his existence is not material. He does not have flesh until he's born at Bethlehem. So God is spirit. He is not material. So everything we're going to say, everything the Scripture says about Father, Son, and Spirit is by way of analogy. There's not a direct correspondence to human fathers and sons and divine father, and divine son. We've got to keep that in mind, or we will go off the rails. Now, there's also, there's some things we're just never going to know or understand, no matter how hard we try. But the harder we try, the more we'll understand, and yet the more mystery we will encounter. Now, if you've ever first studied anything in school, science, computer science, biology, whatever, you know that when you're a little kid in kindergarten, you learn about flowers. Oh, here's a flower, here's this part of the flower, here's the petal, here's the leaf, here's whatever. Oh, that's so simple. And you're amazed by that when you're five. But the older you get, the more science you get, the more mysterious, the more wonderful it becomes. I was talking with Lydia, she's taking some nursing classes. You know, it all makes sense. Oh, this does this, and all of a sudden you get into the chemical, chemistry of it all. It's like, I can't believe these, this, I can't even understand this. So the amazing design of God is seen, and yet you get into these things, well, how can something be this and that at the same time? And 
you know, is light a ray? Is it a wave or is it a particle? I, I, the, the deeper you get, the wonder increases, but so does the mystery. Theology used to be called the queen of the sciences. When it was taught in Bible-believing seminaries and universities, it was the queen of the sciences. That's what it was referred to for hundreds of years. And so the same thing applies. The deeper we get into our study of God, the more we will be amazed, but the more mysteries we'll run into. So God is, God is spirit. He is not material. So when we get to talking about three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, we'll refer to three persons or subsistences, each with the full essence. So when the Father has the divine nature, he's not sharing that with the Son. There is one essence. There's one substance. They, they subsist as individuals, but their nature is the same. If you were to divide the nature up into three parts, then each of the parts would be less than fully God. That's why the divine simplicity, the oneness of God is so important. It's indivisible. He cannot be divided. John of Damascus is a Eastern Orthodox, um, but we would probably consider a true Christian church father from the 700s. And he says, there is one essence, there is one goodness, there is one power, there is one will, there is one energy, there is one authority, one and the same not three resembling each other. So when God is one, these three all have one essence, one goodness, one power, one will, one energy, one authority, one and the same. This is what's true when we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The nature is indivisible, but the persons can be spoken of as individuals. Gerald Bray, who has written much, a lot on the Trinity, as he reflects on the shift between the Old and the New Testaments, he says, to put it another way, Whereas ordinary Jews were kept out of the holiest place in the temple, Christians have been admitted into the inner life of God. Only in that context, and based on that understanding, can we reconcile Christian theology with the Old Testament revelation. How do we fit three persons, one God? The God who appears as one to those who view him on the outside reveals himself as trinity of persons once his inner life is opened to our experience. God from the outside is one. When you're at a distance, he's one. When he begins to reveal himself through Christ, you see this, the inside is just, it's just marvelous and glorious. So God is one. I want to establish that fact. That is the foundation. But then to move to the second part of that phrase, there is one God, the Father. Why is he the Father? Think about it. Think, let's, let, we're, we're talking about analogy here. Think about why, it, why is someone a father? Some of you are fathers and some of you are not. What is the distinguishing factor between a father and a father? and not a father. To be a father means you have a son or a daughter. Fatherness only begins or commences when someone has a son or a daughter. And this point of having a son is called begetting, to use good King James language. If you've ever read Matthew 1 in the King James, it says, begot, 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 begot. That's what it means to have a son. To, when we speak of a woman she gave birth to or she's the mother of, and the, the corollary of that on the father's side is to beget to become the father of. So he is the father. We refer to him as the father because he is a father. And this is why we speak of God the Father. Now we're going to go into some, some area that's mysterious. And I have prayed that God will keep me walking on the line here. But what I'm going to share, not only I believe comes from Scripture, but is what the church has taught for 2,000 years. It's not often talked of in church. It's complex. And I'm not going to try to keep it as, as, as clear and as basic as possible. But this is what Scripture reveals, I believe. I believe that most people that I know and that we would respect would share this. Why is God the Father? He's the Father because He has a Son. How long has the Father had a Son? The Father has had a Son for all eternity. There is never a time when the Son was not. Back in 325, the Council of Nicaea, sometimes we say the Nicene Creed here. Sometimes we'll recite that. So back to 325, 381, it says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial, which would mean of the same essence with the Father. How do the Father and Son relate? The Son is begotten by the Father, but he is of the same substance with the Father. He is begotten, not made. And these theologians took a long time to wrestle through the very precise wording of this. Monty shared that, that 
Firstborn does not mean that he is created. There's a meaning to that that's not naturally generated. But we want to make sure that we understand when did the Son become the Son? The Son was the Son of God before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus did not become a son of his Father when he was born in Bethlehem. He was the Son throughout all eternity. He was begotten by the Father throughout all eternity. Someone asked on Wednesday night when I was sharing some of this information on Wednesday night, is there, is there biblical thinking? How can we know that he was the son before he was born at Bethlehem? It's, it's too much to share in an overview like this. But maybe I'll just refer you to Hebrews 1, 1-2 where it says, God who in the past spoke, by the, spoke to our fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us through his son. He has spoken through his son. He didn't say the second person of the Trinity came and was born and became a son. He has said he has spoken, not through the prophets, but he has spoken through his son, through whom he made the worlds. And in 1 John 4, verse 9, it says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. He has sent his son into the world. He did not send the second person of the Trinity, this nameless second person of the Trinity, into the world to be born as a baby and then become the Son of God, humanly speaking. But he is the Son of God, divinely speaking. So the question that we then might ask is, how did he become Father to the Son? How did the Father become the Father to the Son? Now we can't really say, become, because that implies that there was a before. And we're talking eternally here. I said we're using analogy to talk of human existence and passing on human uh, nature from one generation to the next. We're talking about the Father and the Son. We're talking about di- divine reality, eternal reality. So we can't say He became Father to the Son. But we can say He begot the Son eternally. Now, if you read, probably most of you memorized John 3.16 in the King James Version or something along that where it says God gave His only begotten Son. If you read that in most modern translations, it'll say God gave his son or his one and only son or his unique son. The Greek word underlying that really does refer to something that says only begotten. It's the word mono, only, and genes, which is where we get generation to generate. God begot his son. It's not just the, his, it's not just the father has a special son or a single son, but the father begot the son. That is called eternal generation. And this is where it might sound like we're stepping on the rail and about to fall off the side. But the Father throughout all eternity has given existence to the Son. The Father is the source of all things. We might look to one verse in John 5.26. I know I will raise questions this morning that are going to leave questions in your mind. But I know I'm standing with, I'm standing with, with, with respectable and God-fearing men when I say these things. In John 5, 26, we could just point to this as one verse that would refer to this. It says in John 5, 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. As the Father has life in himself, intrinsically in the Father, he has life in himself. And he has granted that to the Son to have life in himself. And most people would understand that life in himself referring to that divine essence of the divine nature, the substance, the 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 nature of God. Now, because it is eternal and because it is the full nature of God, the Son is also divine. The Son is also equal with the Father. It says in Philippians 2, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at or held onto. He didn't need to because His existence, although sourced from the Father, the Father is the source, the fountain, as the theologians will say, of the Trinity. Because he is the fountain of the Trinity, because the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself, this nature in himself, the nature that he shares with the Father is not, dep- is not subservient to or submissive to the Father. He's not subordinate to the Father. They share that same essence. And I can't explain this any more than I'm doing right now. But this is what the Scriptures teach. And why does this matter? It matters for one reason, because it gives this glory to the Father. It puts the Father when it says he's the, the source of all things. This is what we would say 
the, script, the theologians would call eternal generation. The Father has a divine essence in himself and grants this to the Son, John 5, 26. He has life in himself and he grants the Son to have life in himself. But because it is an eternal existence, it is an eternal substance and essence, it is not less than the Father's. And because the Father is infinite, he doesn't lose any of his essence when he gives it his, that full essence to the Son. And because the Son receives the full essence of the Father, he's not less than the Father because he has all of it and is not less than the Father. Can we understand this? No, not, not fully. We can maybe start to scratch at it. But it's what the Scriptures point to. If the Father is the, 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 the Father of the Son, if he is the, the eternal Father of an eternal Son, what is the Father's disposition to the Son? How does the Father view the Son? We might have read John a few times, and we might have seen some flavors of how the Son is viewed in the Father's eyes. Now, turn over to John chapter 3. I think we'll be able to refer to a few, enough verses in John to let you kind of keep your Bible open there, your, your phone open there. In John chapter 3, This is John the Baptist speaking in John 3.35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father, how, does, how does the Father be the Son? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The next verse is interesting. It says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And I was reading, as I was reading many things in preparation for this, one, one pastor pointed out, perhaps the reason that God has wrath for those who reject His Son is because of how much He loves His Son. He loves His Son so much that he, he, His wrath is poured out against those who do not love His Son. And there is this, this, this love between Father and Son that cannot be expressed, that we can't begin to imagine on a human plane. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into His hand. In John 5, verse 20, page or two over. John 5, verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. And He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. If you can remember back to the baptism of Jesus, Jesus is there in the river with John and a voice speaks from heaven. What does that voice say from heaven? This is my what? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am what? Well pleased. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He says the same thing at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. This is the disposition. This is the Father, the source, the fountain of all things. This is how He views His Son. This is how He views His Son. But if the Father is the Father to the Son and we were talking just in the, the realm of the Trinity to this point, is he a father in another way? How else might he be father, considered father? The word father can be used metaphorically as well. We can think of people say if George Washington was the father of our country, or someone's considered the father of modern science. What does that mean? That means they're the founder, they're the, they're the originator, or they had a lot to do with the establishment of something. And so that's what the Father is as well. Not just towards the Son, but towards all of creation. He is the source of all things. We read that in our verse that we read, 1 Corinthians 6, 8. All things are from the Father. So whether it's creation, all things are from the Father. Now it says in the second part of that verse, they're through the Son. The Son was the, the means, He was the agent of creation. But the source of creation was the Father. The Father was the source of creation. He was the fountain of creation. All things originated with the Father. But it's not just creation that the Father is the source of. He's the source of revelation. In Hebrews 1, we read that Hebrews 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke to the fathers through His prophets has now spoken through His Son. So all revelation, everything we know about God comes from, originates with the Father. And it's not creation alone. It's not revelation alone. It's also redemption. Where does redemption start? It starts with the Father. When Jesus was killed there on the cross, and then Peter, a few chapters into Acts, he says, 
about Jesus. He says to these rulers, he said, Jesus was killed, but it was, it was to do whatever, as they're praying to the Father, they say, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The Father determines everything, the, whether it's the, the story of redemption or the story of the world, which in some senses is the same story. The Father determines it's His plan. Now, a few minutes ago, we sang a song that said, and one of my favorite songs, um, my hope is in the Lord who gave Himself for me. That's Christ. But then it says, His grace has planned it all. Well, who's that? That's the Father. And sometimes, and this is where I said originally, back when I began, there was some confusion in my thinking, and this is where some of that was. It's kind of a blending of these, these persons of the Trinity or their works together. Or substituting the word God and not seeing that God and Father often throughout the New Testament speak about the same thing. Let me read John, Ephesians chapter 1. When we begin to see, when he says that there is one God the Father, when we begin to see the pattern of the New Testament, the New Testament overwhelmingly, and I say overwhelmingly, when it says God, it's referring to the Father. And this is where the light bulb went on for me in a way I'd never seen before because I hadn't carefully read the text or the context. But when you see that the word God is almost always talking about the Father, it will begin to shift the way you see the Father, I believe. Let me read Ephesians 1, but do that in a way that takes out the word God and plugs in the word Father where it would belong in context and takes out the pronouns as well. Now, I haven't written this down in my Bible, so hopefully I won't stumble. But let me read this again in, in the New King James, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be, again, it's going to be a little bit different than you're used to because I'm plugging in the word Father where the Father fits the context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before the Father in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to the Father himself, according to the good pleasure of the Father's will, to the praise of the glory of the Father's grace, by which the Father made us accepted in the Beloved. In him, that would be the Son there, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of the Father's grace, which the Father made to abound to us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the Father's good pleasure, which the Father purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, the Father might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Christ. In Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of the Father's will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Does that read a little bit differently than you're used to reading Ephesians? And if I'm the only one that ever missed this, I'm glad that you saw it before I did. But it changes for me the way I see. Because when I think, this is the mistake I was making. Sometimes life gets hard. And it's been pretty hard for us the past couple years. And a few months ago, weeks ago, some you know, boiling point was reached. And I told Sharon, I said, Sometimes I just feel like God's against us. Have you ever felt that way, like God's against you? It dawned on me I would never say that about Jesus. I would never say that about the Spirit. Well, who does that leave? That either leaves a fourth person of the Trinity or it leaves God the Father. And that's where my mistake in thinking was. And I hope if you were making that same mistake that I'll correct it for you and you'll see the majesty and glory of the Father. And if you've not, that you can rejoice in this truth that I have recently been able to rejoice in. When the New Testament talks about God, it's almost always talking about the Father. But if God is the Father of His Son, God is the source of all creation, the Father is the source of all creation, God is also the Father to His children. And how do we come to know God the Father as Father? He's not revealed like this in the Old Testament. We don't, we don't get to know God as Father in the Old Testament. The Father cannot be known apart from the Son. And the Father cannot be known until the Son has come. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of the Father, who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. You cannot know God the Father apart from God the Son. 
I think we all know some of these things intrinsically. We know verses that kind of point to this. But we have to understand the point of salvation is not just to get us out of hell and get us into heaven. Why are we saved? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you just read that verse, what do you think the goal of salvation is? The Father. Now, see, see what it says there? It says, God so loved the world. Who's God there? It's the Father. The Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, that's good. The Father loves the world so much that he doesn't want people to perish and go to hell. But that's not what everlasting life is. If you turn over to John 17, 3, when Jesus is in his high priestly prayer before his crucifixion, what does he say? He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Who's you? It's the Father. What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowledge of the Father and the Son. So why did the Father send the Son into the world? It wasn't just to get us out of hell. It was because he wanted us to know him. And whenever we're not taking the time or effort to know the Father, we're missing out on the entire point of salvation. God the Father, the source of all things, the source of the Son, the source of creation, the, the one who's planned all of history, the one who's revealed himself to us, do you see his heart? Do you see a Father's heart? He's done all this. He's planned all this. And he wants us to enter into that relationship with him. He's not the generic God of the Old Testament who's distant and far off. And I, when I say generic, I say that in quotes, obviously. He's not that God. I mean, he is, the, he is that God, but he's more. We know more about that God than anybody in the Old Testament did. And that is where this, this wonder, this love of the Father is so important. Philip said, after, after Philip had been with Jesus for th two or three years, and Jesus is going away in John 14. Philip says, well, if you're going away, well, show us the Father. And, Philip says, and Jesus says, Philip, I've been with you all this time and you don't realize that? Anything you've, if you've seen me, what have you seen? You've seen the Father. Because that's the whole point. That's why the Son, one of the major reasons the Son came to earth was to declare the Father. To declare the Father's glory. And so what does that mean? That means if you've seen the Father, you've seen, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. That means anything you love about Jesus is true because it's true of the Father. The Father is a spirit and we are creatures. We are, we are immaterial. We're, in, we're physical. We're human. We can't easily identify with a spirit being. And so what does the Father do? He says, I want my creation to know me and know me well. And so what do I do? I take my son that I have loved for all eternity and I ask him, are you willing to go to put on human flesh to submit yourself this world that you made, one song says, hands that, stung, hands that flung stars into space surrender themselves to nails. Are you willing to do that? Because I love my creatures and I want them to know me. And this is the Father that we're talking about. There's so many more. Read the book of John. There's so much there. So how do we come to be his children? How do we come to be the Father's children? Remember, he's planned it all. We read Ephesians 1. It was his plan. He determined. He sent. He foreordained the Son to be the Lamb. Everything goes back to the Father. And when we just talk about God without being specific, we're denying the Father the glory that he deserves. Because it's not God generally who made the plans. It's the Father specifically who made the plans. We come to be his children you know that. Jesus said in John 14, no man comes to the Father except through me. Whoever believes in him, he's given the right to be the sons of God. Don't miss how important and how precious that is. Well, then what, if we come to be his children, what is his disposition? How does he look upon us as his children? Turn to John, if you're still in John, John 17, 23. I will try to keep this as short as possible. I don't have the luxury of Joe to continuing this next week. So I will do my best to make sure the roast doesn't burn. John 17, 23. How does the Father love us? How does the, Father's, how does the Father look upon us? This is Jesus towards the end of his ministry. John 17, 23. Back up a verse. Verse 22. And the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. How does the Father love us? He loves us the way he loves his Son. What does he say about his Son? We just talked about that. What does he say about his Son? This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Sometimes there's this thinking in Christian circles. This is one error I didn't make. But maybe you do and maybe others have. There's this idea that the Father is the, is the angry God of the Old Testament and the only way to get into His good graces and to make Him love us is for Jesus to die for us. And once Jesus dies for us, then the Father loves us. But the Father loves us. That's why He sent the Son to begin with. He has a disposition. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. I may get ahead of myself. If I do, I'll try to forgive myself. Romans 5.8. Another verse we've all maybe memorized. Again, look at the context. Who's it talking about? Romans 5. I'll start in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Who's God there? We have peace with the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of who? The love of God the Father has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Because when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God, who? The Father, demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, that's why we know it's the father. We were enemies, we were reconciled to the father through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. That is the father's disposition towards us. He has love that we cannot imagine. He has the love. You can't divide God's love up. He can't love Jesus, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, like a five-year-old might say or a two-year-old might say, he loves me this much. He has to love us the same way he loves Jesus. God's love is not given in portions. His love is infinite. If he loves Jesus this much, that's the same amount that he loves us. He has good plans and good intentions and good purposes for us. Sort of to wrap things up, I want to ask some questions. What mistakes can we make about the Father? What mistakes can we make about the Father? One, we can attribute His actions to being that of the divine nature. And so we can say, like, God did this. when we should say, the Father did this. Rarely, if ever, does the New Testament speak about the Trinity, quote, as a whole. Now, we shouldn't say whole because you can't divide it up. But rarely, when the word... Rarely, if ever, when the New Testament says God, is it talking about the Godhead? It's either talking about the Father or the Son or the Spirit. And so in our thinking, we need to be clear and careful to not say God did this when what we mean to say is the Father did this. I was talking to a friend this week, and he said, the New Testament doesn't actually come out and say this, but they sort of, the New Testament writers sort of assume that we're going to know when they mean God, when they say God, they mean Father. That's how closely those two words are connected in the writers of the New Testament. If you look at the beginning of almost any of Paul's epistles, grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God and Father, not completely, but basically interchangeable in the mind of the New Testament writers. So, Fred Sanders, who's written a lot of information on the Trinity, a lot of thinking about the Trinity, he says one way to slight the Father, one way to slight the Father is to keep reassigning what belongs to him personally to the divine nature. Think carefully when you pray. 
Think carefully when you sing. Look at the words you're, you're singing. If it says Lord or if it says God, take time to think. Who's it talking about? Is it the Son or is it the Father? And sadly, you'll find that some hymns are kind of a mishmash. They're not, they're not clear. The Trinity is not clear. It's not clearly recorded. But be intentional to know. Often the Father is neglected by just saying, well, God did it. Well, did God do it? Or was it specifically the Father? Be thought, don't be thoughtless in your prayers and your Bible reading. Notice when you're reading the Scripture who is being talked about in this passage. Another mistake we can make about the Father. We can think about Him as the Old Testament people thought about Him and not as the Father. To think of God only as God and not as Father or Son or Spirit is to go back to the Dark Ages. Why would we want to think generically about God when He has sent His Son so that we don't have to think generically about Him? We have this great privilege that the Old Testament saints didn't have. And yet if we're not careful in our thinking about the Trinity, we go back and we live as all, like we're back under the Mosaic Law without the revelation of the Son. God offers Himself in relationship to us. And we have this privilege. So I trust that we will always look to Him as Father and not generically as God. Because to do that is to live in confusion or with cloudiness in our minds, or even, as the case might feel like, to create a fourth member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, and God, which is not the case at all. When you think about God, this is who you should be thinking of. You should not think about the Father only when you start your prayer. It's not only when I say, Our Father in Heaven, or Dear Heavenly Father. That's not the only time I should be thinking about God. This is the overwhelming New Testament pattern. Over and over and over again, that's what the New Testament says. Let me just read a couple short little excerpts from some verses that you'll know quite well so you can see this. 1 John 4.8, God is love. Very clear from that passage. It's the Father that's being spoken of. 1 Peter 3.18, He died to bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 13.14, the one we say after the service every single Sunday. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. See, he doesn't name the Father there, but that's obviously who he's talking about. The love of God. That's the one characteristic that's constantly pushed on us as representative of the Father. God so loved the world. Romans 5.8, God commanded his love to us. So we can, we, can, we can make a mistake in our thinking by attributing his actions as Father to just the generic Trinity, or by just thinking of him as God and not specifically thinking of his Father. Or we can make mistakes by doubting his love and his goodness. And I think this is the one where maybe we struggle with the most. If you've been through those difficult times, when finances are not working out, when the family situation is broken and you didn't do anything wrong, when tragedy after tragedy after tragedy comes, when the world is literally blowing itself up on the news, we can doubt his love and his goodness. Think of our brothers and sisters over there right now on Sunday morning just trying to have church. You can doubt his love and his goodness, but please don't do that. For me, so long as I was thinking of him as God, it was easier to doubt his love and his goodness. But when I began to see him as Father, that instantly created that personal relationship, that much more personal, and I that, that think that's the whole point of Christ coming, is to, to enhance that personal connection with his creatures. Read Matthew 5-7 through 7 this afternoon. 16 times out of the 20 in that book, Jesus talks about your father. And what does he say? Your father knows what you need before you even ask. Your father cares for you more than the lilies of the field. Your father, our father who art in heaven. Remember, he's the source of everything and he has a good and wise plan. You can trust a father, a father like this. He loves you with a love that he has for his son. Some of you today, you may know for sure that you do not know our God. You may know that you do not know the Father. I want you to realize that you are not rejecting some God who's far off, some God who's in the distance, 
Some God with lightning bolts in his hands waiting to punish you, waiting to judge you. You are rejecting and you are ignoring this kind of a father. This is the father who has offered himself through the son. And this is who you are scorning. This is who you're rejecting. This is who your love of pleasure or your lack of a desire to submit to him or whatever it may be that's keeping you from the father. It's not keeping you from God. It is. I think this has made this clear. It's keeping you from a father. It's keeping you from this father. The father who's the father of the son, who's the father of creation, who's the source of revelation, who's the, who's the, the fountain of the plan for all of history. This is who you're denying and rejecting. He is a God of love. And it says, His goodness leads you to repentance. He is a God of love who has loved His Son for all eternity and whose love has made provision for the salvation of His enemies. And for those of us who are believers, this is who you feel is against you when it feels like life's going the wrong way. When you feel like you just can't get a break. You can cry out from the heart to a father. And you may not understand it, but you can trust that he's a father. He's not a God who is far off. I think maybe the best way to finish is to read Romans 8. Just, just a part of Romans 8. We were there in 5. Let me read verse 28 through 39. And we'll use that to close. Uh, the message. Romans 8, verse 28. I, I won't substitute the word Father, but you should know now that when you read God in these verses, it's the Father. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the Father is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness or peril or sword, or nuclear threats? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.